Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we start, I'd like to let you know that you can sign up to our 30-day free digital trial and get access to the New Scientist app. It's available on iOS, Android, smartphone or tablet devices. The launch of our in-app audio feature means there has never been a better time to join New Scientist. Tune in for news, features, comment and more from the world's leading science and technology weekly. Listen to all available audio content from any one issue in one go for maximum convenience, whether you're on the move, relaxing, whatever you're doing. Sign up to our free trial today at newscientist.com forward slash 30 days. That's three zero days. Newscientist.com slash 30 days. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm your co-host Penny Sarche. And I'm Timothy Revel. This week, we're looking at three of the biggest challenges in science. That's right. We've got neuroscientist Anil Seth on new theories of consciousness, and we'll be hearing from reporter Leia Crane on a possible way to finally measure the quantum nature of gravity. And our third big challenge is how do we make global shipping go green? (laughs) So, Adam, um, Vaughan is with us here, our chief reporter, and you're going to be telling us about these new developments. Hi, Adam. Hello, All that, plus some exciting discoveries that reveal humanity's ancient history in Arabia and some extremely retro tech at the Large Hadron Collider. A veritable smorgasbord. And remember, as a valued listener to the podcast, you can get a discount subscription to New Scientist using the code POD20. Go to newscientist.com slash POD20 to subscribe and enjoy all the content of the magazine, plus audio versions of the stories with a 20% discount. First up, we're talking about one of the toughest nuts to crack in the mission to get to net zero, shipping. Shipping of goods around the world accounts for almost 3% of global carbon dioxide emissions and is one of the few sectors where emissions are going up rather than down. So Adam, what can we do about it? Uh, Yeah, so this is something I've got weirdly obsessed and interested (laughs) in. And um, last week was a bit bit of a moment because we saw this bold move by Maersk. It's this Danish company that's the world's largest shipping firm which bought eight really big cargo ships and the thing that's interesting about them is they run they have dual fuel engines so they can run on oil like most ships today but also on methanol a type of alcohol but what's perhaps even more important than the fact they have that capability is Musk said that it's going to run the ships on methanol produced in a low carbon way and it's signed some supply chain deals to make sure it has the fuel and those ships should be arriving around 2024. So why is methanol better when it comes to emissions? Air pollution wise, 
it's much better than oil. So the sort of knocks and the socks that get released um, by to most of today's ships. But in terms of sort of global environmental impacts um, in terms of climate change, it emits much less CO2 into the atmosphere. And the CO2 it does emit can theoretically be cancelled out by the way the methanol is made. So Maersk um, is looking at, as always with these things like hydrogen and other stuff, it's always how the way the fuel is made that's important. And in this case, Maersk is looking at two ways. One is something called e-methanol, where you basically make so-called green hydrogen, which is, you know, you get renewable electricity, you add water and an electrolyzer and out comes hydrogen. And then you need to get the CO2 to make the methanol. And that ideally is captured by machine from the air. So things, companies like Climeworks in Switzerland already have the technology like that, albeit on a small scale. And there's other places the CO2 could come from as well. So the CO2 that gets released when you then burn the methanol is already CO2 that you've captured out of you've the You've got it, yeah. So that's, so, yeah, it could, yeah, so that's the theoretical sort of carbon neutral element there. And the other, the other way of doing it is, is biomethanol. So that's where you basically do it from, you convert it from a source of biomass. So it could be certain types of waste from landfill, which is uh, crops or trees. The biomethanol route is cheaper because it's sort of a bit more established and it's likely to be used most in the short term. But there's just only so much biomass in the world, right? So uh, it looks like e-methanol will probably be the one that scales up in the future. Are there any other, you know, completely different ideas, things that other shipping companies could do? Uh, yes, there are. So it's certainly, I think the really interesting thing that I find about shipping is it's a real open question, Tim, as to like what technology, what, you know, what fuel or approach is used. So um, two of the other things, the main things that in terms of fuel that companies are looking at is uh, one is LNG, liquefied natural gas. So that is something that like this Maersk sort of French and German rivals are, are pursuing and they're going down the LNG road. And LNG is really good at cutting CO2. But if you look at the broader thing, which is what matters for climate change of, of greenhouse gases, the problem with LNG is sort of in the name that they, you know, it's gas and they basically release a lot of methane. Unless you get like the best, the very best LNG engines, which most people are not buying you have a lot of what I call methane slippage. So you get a lot of methane released when it's being burned in the engine into the atmosphere, which is obviously a more powerful, if short, more short-lived greenhouse gas than CO2. So, And then you also have potentially the methane leaking from the, the gas wells that would be used to produce it. So sometimes LNG in some analysis can actually come out worse than the oil most people use today. The other big um, option people are looking at is something called a green ammonia. So it's pretty much, you know, you make the green hydrogen, as we talked about, and then you add the Harbour-Bosch process on the end to make it into ammonia. It's simpler to make the methanol and it's cheaper, but there's a few reasons that Maersk and some of the academics and think tanks and observers that I spoke to think that methanol might be a better bet. It's basically a more mature technology. It's already used in a few ships around the world. It's sort of for operational and safety reasons a bit more attractive because ammonia is more toxic i mean they're both toxic but ammonia is even more toxic you know it can be extremely dangerous for people and it's not very good for the aquatic environment either uh, it's a gas not a liquid so that's what makes it harder to handle for ports and ships but perhaps the most important thing is ammonia engines don't exist they're not you know they're not a thing they're, they're being developed <laughs> but the first aren't expected for another sort of two or three years or so so in the meantime methanol looks like possibly one of the most promising ways of decarbonizing shipping at the moment. 
Where are all the electric boats? Yeah, that's a good question. There are there are things like electric ferries, and it's it's a bit like the I suppose the analogy I'd use is it's a bit like with aviation, like electrification and batteries are sort of making some inroads on the small stuff. You know, like there's like two or four seater electric planes, right? That's a thing, but there's not. You know, you're not going to go on a flight from London to New York on an electric plane any any time in the. Next... Haven't got jumbo jet electric. No, we don't yeah. have jumbo jet electric, and we don't have. You know, these container ships are just on a sort of almost impossible to imagine scale until you go to somewhere like Rotterdam and see them up close. But yes, yeah, so it's not quite ready for massive ships, and 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 it probably will never be. I, I, I suspect. So, does um, is methanol the solution then? Have we solved the problem? <laughs> I, I wish we have. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I think this. I think this is what's really interesting about this area. It's just um, a. It's not really not clear whether methanol will be what everyone sort of homes in on because you know other companies are pursuing other routes. But e- even if methanol is the solution, you know some of the people I spoke to are sort of quite pessimistic about you know us scaling it up enough in terms of you know there's plenty of methanol being made in the world. There's like 92 million tons made a year. But like hydrogen, almost all of it is made directly from fossil fuels. So that's not a green option, right? So it's, you know, it's a tiny fraction of that is made in the sort of green ways that I've mentioned. And um, yeah, some people are, are quite pessimistic that that can be scaled up in time. But, you know, I guess the important thing is companies like this placing orders for big ships, right, which are going to need to run on the stuff that sends a message to producers of the stuff to, you know, that it's worth spending that X million or billion on on a new low carbon methanol plant somewhere. So I don't know. I'm hopeful. Why is shipping such a significant challenge when it comes to going for net zero? A three percent of global emissions doesn't sound like it's that much. Yeah, you're 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 right. I mean, you make a good point. You know, three percent doesn't sound that huge in the scheme of things. I guess the point is, it's with shipping. It's not something we can easily curb the demand for. You know, shipping carries like. I think the last figure, last time I looked, it carries like ninety percent of global goods, you know. And and if unless if we're going to, maybe we're just going to accept that we don't don't have capitalism anymore, which you know that's one way of decarbonizing. Um, but anyway, the point is the demand is is quite hard to curb, um, and that's partly why shipping's emissions are still growing, while most other sectors are going down. And then I guess how we how we go about it is still how we decarbonize this big emitter is just. The technology is at a really, you know, it's at an early stage, right? So it's gonna, it's gonna be hard, and it's gonna take development, and it's gonna take things being scaled up to actually get there. So I, I think that's that's why it's an important one because you know, we've got to start now, right? Next up to CERN, Tim, what's happening there? Yeah, CERN. So we've been looking at the Large Hadron Collider, which is arguably the most technically sophisticated piece of engineering in existence. As I'm sure you know, we smash particles together extreme speeds close to the speed of light there and then study the effects with extreme precision. And as our technology reporter Matthew Sparks reports this week, it stores its data on tape. Tape? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, tape reels of the stuff. Oh, go on. (laughs) So the LHC, it has massive data centers that can hold up to 300 petabytes of data, which is enough to store 600,000 years of MP3 music, which... um, coincidentally, is just a smidgen more than I have in my own personal collection. (laughs) Um, Obviously, I wouldn't use MP3s. Anyway, uh, during experiments, so the data is is first streamed through 50,000 kilometers of fiber optic cables onto hard disks, 
which is don't use tape, but this is only temporary and the data on the hard disks has to be deleted to make room for new experiments every now and again. And so there are these 50,000 tape cartridges that are used to back everything up. That's so retro. So why, why is this the technology that they're using? The strange thing is for some tasks, it's still hard to beat tape. At CERN, around 30 hard disks fail every single week. Wow. Whereas if you compare that to tape, if it's stored properly, it can last for decades. So it obviously has some drawbacks. You know, tape is much slower and the way data is stored on tape is a bit like it was on an old, you know, an old video tape in that you've got to sort of fast forward to the right bit to get the right bit of data, which makes it much, much slower when you want to access that data. But for having a backup, that's not really a problem at all because you only occasionally want to go back and see what the data was and then you can take it from there and put it onto a hard disk when you need it. Why don't they just like have hard disks and then like mirror them on servers around the world of like backups like the rest of us do? So they do they do do that, but right. they also have all of these tapes. Actually, if you go to the CERN um, gift shop, you can mm. buy one of the tapes from the 80s yeah. um, <laughs> and you can like come away with like a little bit of... Um, particle accelerator data uh, to call your own and it still it still lasts whereas hard disks even the best hard disks it's very unlikely that you know four decades later they're still working what's the lhc been up to recently so not very much i mean it's been shut down for the last three years for upgrades and they sort of do this periodically they upgrade the magnets they upgrade some of the data storage capabilities and one of the things that can be done at CERN is they can sort of dial up and dial down how much data is recorded in each test. And the amount of data is sort of the bottleneck on some of our understanding. So this next set of experiments that is due to um, sort of get going very soon, will be able to store up to four times more data from each experiment than the previous one. And what will these experiments be looking for? It's very similar to what they've been doing before in that they're going to smash various particles together at high speeds, but it's going to be a bit faster than before, (laughs) and they're going to be able to measure a bit more stuff than before. So they've already seen the Higgs boson, but now they're they're hoping with this extra power that something will break. You know, one of the downsides of of spotting the Higgs boson was that it, it was really expected. And the hope is that at higher power with more data, we might be able to see something that doesn't match the standard model of particle physics, and that would tell us something new about the universe. Before we continue, we're so pleased to let you know that voting is now open for the 2021 New Scientist Photography Awards. Yes, great news. So Penny and myself had great fun judging this year's entries. um, And we also did that alongside naturalist Chris Packham, the award-winning photographer Sue Flood, and New Scientist's own picture editor, Helen Benyons. The photography competition celebrates images that illustrate how science and technology affect our lives and the world around us. Together, we decided the category winners, uh, runners-up and overall shortlist. But the overall competition winner will be decided by you, the public. The shortlist is a spectacular collection of images that I think you really do have to see. And you can see them all by visiting newscientist.com slash public vote. And then by casting your vote, you'll help determine who gets the big £1,000 prize. Go to newscientist.com slash public vote to cast your vote. Next up for our second big challenge, there are few people who speak so eloquently and expertly on consciousness as the neuroscientist Anil Seth. Human consciousness is one of the biggest mysteries in the universe and in his new book, Being You, A New Science of Consciousness, Anil puts forward a radical new theory of the self. 
Podcast editor Rowan Hooper spoke to Anil about new ways to tackle the hard problem. One of the routes I've taken in the book and in my work is by thinking firstly about perception. When we are conscious, we have conscious experiences of the world around us and of the self, of, of being a self within it. And a long-standing question in psychology is how are these perceptions constructed? Sensory data that comes into the brain doesn't come with labels that you know this, is, this signal is from a cat or a coffee cup or a book or a table. They're just electrical impulses that are only indirectly related to what's out there in the world. So there's quite an old idea in psychology that perception has to be a process of informed guesswork or inference. The brain's always trying to reach its best guess about the causes of sensory signals. And the idea within that is that perceptual experience is the content of the brain's best guess about what in the world is causing the sensory data that, that it receives. And what this means for thinking about consciousness, it's not really an answer to why and how consciousness is part of the universe in, in the first place. It's more an answer to why a particular experience is the way it is and not some other way, like why a visual experience has the character, the phenomenology that it has, why it's different from an emotional experience or an experience of agency or free will or something like that. We can think of them as different kinds of perceptual predictions, different kinds of brain-based best guesses. Breaking them down into those different kinds of ways of analysing those inputs, that, that helps you tackle the bigger problem, I guess. That's certainly my hope. There are two broad ways of trying to tackle this thorny problem of consciousness. I mean, thorny problem is a bit of an understatement, <laughs> this vast mystery that we've struggled with for centuries. One is to tackle it head on, so to speak. It does seem mystifying how any kind of physical process at all interactions between stuff, whatever stuff ultimately is, how any kind of physical process could be identical to or give rise to any conscious experience. The philosopher David Chalmers called this the hard problem of consciousness. And trying to approach consciousness head on like this, maybe it's going to work. There's a few suggestions out there. But my intuition is that's not the right way to do it. The right way to do it is to recognize that consciousness is more than one thing. Conscious experiences are diverse. Different species will have different spaces of conscious experience, different individuals, different humans, different people. And if we break down consciousness into its different dimensions or elements, different kinds of perception, then my hope is that this hard problem of consciousness will dissolve or fade away. There's an amazing bit in your book about William James and his view that bodily perception leads to emotion rather than the other way around. Can you tell us a bit about that? I'd love to. I mean, emotion for me is where it gets really interesting. So interoception is a broad class of all perceptual inferences and sensory signals that have to do with the interior of the body. James, along with Carl Langer, well, independently, actually, they proposed the idea long ago that emotion, instead of being a response to a situation in the world that would then engender changes in the body was in fact rather the other way around. The classic example is something like you suddenly stumble across a bear or a snake or something frightening. It's natural to think that you first recognize there's something frightening there. The brain generates the emotion of fear and that emotion of fear then sets in train all kinds of physiological responses so that you're ready to fight or, or run away or whatever it is that you might do. 
And James and Langer said, no, actually, it's the other way around. So that you do indeed first recognize that there's a bear or a snake. That recognition is enough to set in train various physiological changes in the body. Your heart rate increases, your blood pressure increases, all these things. And it's the perception of those changes that is the experience of fear in this case. And that idea has been bouncing around psychology for more than 100 years now. It's, some people say it's too simplistic. It doesn't quite work like that. And instead of trying to just resolve that directly, it, it turns out that you can think of this Jamesian idea as another kind of predictive best guessing. At least this is my thought about it. When we experience an emotion, what's happening is that the brain is making an inference, a best guess about the likely causes of changes in the body itself. And this explains why emotions have the kind of phenomenological character that they have, why an emotion is different from, let's say, a visual experience of a, of a coffee cup on a table, because the predictions have different functions. When it's a visual experience, the organism mainly cares about where things are and what they are relative to the body. But when it's an emotional experience, what the brain cares about is its prospects of staying alive in the near term. So the character of the, the experiences comes down to the different kinds of predictions in play. And I like thinking this way because it brings some sort of unity to emotion, to cognition, to perception by thinking of them as just different kinds of perceptual inference. And that brings us to your beast machine theory. Do you want to try and explain that for us and tell us how it differs from other approaches to thinking about consciousness? Well, it's sort of the end point of thinking this way. It's not something that I sort of set out with at the beginning. It was really thinking about perception of the world and, and then of the body in terms of this best guessing. And then realizing that, okay, the fundamental function of any kind of perception is to keep the body alive. In a sense, that's what evolution built brains for. It's to help regulate and preserve the physiological condition of the body. So thought of this way, the predictive machinery that underlies all our experiences can be traced to its role in regulating the body. And that every experience that we have, whether it's an emotional experience or an experience of some visual scene, is inflected in a deep way by its relevance for our continuity as, as a living organism. So the beast machine theory plays on one of the things that Descartes said, actually. But one of the things he said in the 17th century was non-human animals weren't conscious in the sense of having rational minds and, and souls. They were merely what he called bait machine or beast machine, flesh and blood robots that didn't have the same kind of moral standing as, as humans. And I've called these ideas that we've been discussing the beast machine theory because it's basically the exact opposite of Descartes. That in my view, all the important things about conscious experiences of the self and the world have their origin in the fact that we are flesh and blood living machines that we experience the world with, through, and because of our living bodies. Anil Seth's book, Being You, A New Science of Consciousness, is out now. If you'd like to hear more, Anil will be giving a new scientist lecture on his fascinating work on the 9th of September. You can attend the virtual event live or watch it afterwards on demand. Visit newscientist.com slash events to find out more. And now to Arabia. 
Two new studies published this week have been shedding light on the peninsula's role in humanity's early history. Yes, that's right. So evidence has been growing for some time that types of human or human ancestor were living on the peninsula at various points between 500,000 and 8,000 years ago, which that's a really long time span to get your head around, actually. It's such a huge expanse of human history. But all of this is shrouded in quite a lot of mystery. While there are more than 10 sites of archaeological interest across the peninsula spanning this time range, there are very little bodily remains. Most of what we found are things like stone tools, footprints, art. So why is that a mystery? Well, it means we can't know for sure what species made them. So this is such a long time range that it overlaps with different types of human and human ancestor, including Homo erectus, the Neanderthals and the Denisovans. So any of them could be culprits for being inhabitants of, of Arabia. But we have found a finger bone at one site um, that does suggest our species, Homo sapiens, was in uh, what's now Saudi Arabia at some point around 85,000 years ago. Cool. Uh, So what do the new studies say? Well, one of them focuses on one archaeological site in Saudi Arabia's Nefer Desert. Analysis of the objects found there suggests that the site was occupied by humans five different times in the past 400,000 years. So what the team did was they looked at uh, the dried up remnants of lakes that once existed there. And they found evidence of sort of five wetter periods when there was a lake. And, And each of these periods was accompanied by a collection of stone artifacts left by hominins. Uh, What's really cool here is that each of these collections uh, from the different wet periods, they're different. The artifacts are are different from each other. There are tools made using different types of prehistoric technology. And so that suggests that each collection of objects represents a separate hominin occupation of this same site. And then the second study, um, that one simulated changes in Arabia's climate over the past 300,000 years. And it found that there were several periods when the region was wetter and greener, an ideal situation for hominins to move into Arabia out from Africa. So that sounds like these um, two new studies, that they agree with each other? Yeah, broadly speaking, the timeframes mostly match up. But there are still really big unanswered questions about who was migrating into this region. We, you know, we've, we've pinned down that Homo sapiens was there later on, but who was responsible the other times? Um, and also which routes they took to get there. But the most recent occupation of the site in one of these new studies, 55,000 years ago, coincides roughly with when Homo sapiens was moving out of Africa into Europe, Asia, and even onwards to Australia. So it's really fascinating to think about what role Arabia may have played in in this uh, moving of our species out into the wider world. And the science writer Michael Marshall wrote a fascinating cover feature on Arabia's role in the birth of humanity um, that we published a few weeks ago. It's such a good read. There's so much more to say on this topic. So we'll link to that in our show notes if you'd like to find out more. And now it's time for our third big challenge of the show. Over to our US team, Chelsea White and Leia Crane. Thanks, Penny. We've got interesting news about what is maybe the biggest unsolved problem in physics. That's quantum gravity. Yeah, and if we want to understand the universe, we have got to figure this one out. (laughs) Definitely. So generally, the laws of gravity govern extremely massive objects, and the laws of quantum mechanics govern extremely small objects. We just don't know how the two fit together. Everything else in our physical models fits neatly into quantum mechanics. So, you know, the widely accepted idea is that gravity has to mesh with it somehow. 
but we just don't know how. And not only is it a huge problem, but it's also one that's extremely hard to test in any way. (laughs) Right. The energies you'd need to test it in a laboratory are way higher than anything we can reach, even with the biggest colliders on Earth. And trying to find evidence for it in space is the other option, but that's really hard too, right? Yeah, if you want to observe quantum effects in space, you have to look at really extreme spots, like the area right next to a black hole, and that's also super difficult. Plus, even if we could observe those areas, we don't really know exactly what we're looking for. But you wrote a story about some researchers that have come up with a possible solution for that. Can you tell us about it? So the solution has to do with gravitational waves. And just to clarify, gravitational waves are ripples in the fabric of space-time that are caused by massive objects moving around. Right. And if you think about other types of waves in physics, like light, one of their most important quantum properties is the fact that they behave both like a wave and like a particle. So if gravitational waves are quantum, they should behave like particles too? That's wild to think about. Exactly. And those hypothetical gravity particles are called gravitons. And the thing about particles is they're not continuous like waves. They're sort of grainy. So if they exist, these gravitons should create a corresponding graininess in gravitational waves. And could we detect that graininess? Yes, theoretically, if we're lucky. (laughs) (laughs) It would manifest as a sort of noise in our gravitational wave detectors. That's really cool. But aren't there other sources of noise in gravitational wave detectors. I mean, they're so sensitive, they can detect earthquakes from thousands of miles away or, you know, a farmer plowing a field nearby. So it seems like one extra source of noise would be just a drop in the bucket. So in some ways, yes, but these fluctuations would also appear in more than one detector at exactly the same time, and they'd be exactly the same everywhere. So that would help this noise be distinguishable from the rest. Would we be able to see that noise from anything that produces gravitational waves, or is it just certain kinds of events? Probably only certain kinds of events, uh, just because the nature of the noise depends on the quantum state of what's being detected. So now the researchers are working on figuring out what that noise would look like from different kinds of astronomical events, like colliding black holes or supernovae, so that we know what to look for. And then observing that noise would prove that gravitons exist, right? And therefore that gravity is a quantum field. That would be huge. Yeah, it would be an enormous step towards a theory of everything, which is really the holy grail of physics. Exciting. Thanks, Leia. On that note, back to you in London. Thanks, Chelsea and Leia. That's all this week. So thanks to you to our guests, Anil Seth and Adam Vaughan. As always, do go to newscientist.com slash pod20 to subscribe and enjoy all of the content of the magazine plus audio versions of the stories with a 20% discount. That link again is newscientist.com slash pod20. That's it. Thanks for listening. Tell all your friends and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by Ollie Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.